0: Peer Review is a series of podcasts designed to shed light on the extraordinary breadth and diversity of talent that sit in the House of Lords. The House of Lords often gets a bad rap because it is thought to be a house of cronies and it is an unelected house. But I hope through these interviews you will see that there is this extraordinary talent, there is a great knowledge and experience and with that i leave you to draw your own conclusions my guest today is a peer who has been described as the consummate peer he's one of the 92 hereditary peers sitting in the lords and has been amazingly on the red benches for 38 years and he's still only 63 extraordinary achievement he has witnessed firsthand the seismic political events of the past few decades a minister under Margaret Thatcher, John Major, and David Cameron. He's been leader of the House of Lords, a cabinet minister, and in 1999, as opposition chief whip, he was at the heart of the secret negotiations over House of Lords reform with Tony Blair, and then Labour prime minister, without the knowledge of his own party leader, William Hague. His life has been in politics, and given both his father and grandfather were politicians, I think it's fair to say politics runs through his blood. He is none other than Thomas Galloway Dunlop de Bleakey Galbraith, the second Baron Strathglide, who's not only a Privy Councillor, but was recently awarded the Companion of Honour and has been a friend and a counsel to me for many years. Tom, it all started at a very early age. Your father sadly died. He was knighted, having had a horrendous assault on him and your family by the press. He was exonerated in something called the Vassal Affair, where Vassal was apparently a spy. Your father, as I say, was exonerated. He was paid damages by the newspapers, but it had a great toll on his health. Your grandfather was the first Lord Strathclyde. He himself was a minister for Scotland in the Churchill government, I think I'm right in saying. And so you eventually inherited from your grandfather, who died when you were 25. Mm-hmm. Well,
1: Jonathan, that's right. I mean, you've got a very good handle of uh, everything that I have uh, done and, uh, and been. And the fact is, I, I do come from a, a, a political line. My grandfather, who had served in the First World War in the Royal Navy uh, in these monstrous battleships, um, slept in a turret, 15-inch guns—quite an extraordinary uh, life. He then joined the Glasgow Corporation, which is local government for for Glasgow. And then um, later on, having qualified as an accountant, he became uh, an an MP and served for many years until he was invited to become uh, a peer in the House of Lords. And he uh, served as a as a minister in the the then Scottish Office. And he, which he continued for many, many years. And he died when he was about 95 in 1985, when I inherited relatively young, 25 years old, from him. My father having predeceased him. And you're right, he had, he was an MP for 33 years. He'd had an interesting uh, parliamentary career um, until it was uh, discovered that one of his rather junior private secretaries had been a Russian spy, uh, for which he was convicted and sent to jail. Uh, The newspapers made much of this, and he was given a very difficult time in the early 1960s, I mean, before I can remember it. And he never entirely recovered from that uh, blow, although he was a a, a minister again. But he was not preferred by Ted Heath, and by the time Margaret Thatcher uh, arrived, he was frankly too old and he died in 1982. So then I became a peer, I had a job in London, but I was interested in politics, so I'd go along to the House of Lords, which was an extraordinary place.
0: But just let's pause on that, because it is fair to say you were earning a good income in the city. You were in the insurance world, a popular figure and successful one, and you gave that up when you were about 28, to take up the opportunity of being a minister, which meant, presumably, you had to give up your career in the city and commit to public service, which was nothing like as well remunerated. And you did that for a number of years.
1: Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, maybe it was all a tremendous mistake and I should have stayed in the city and <laughs> and done well, uh, hopefully, uh, and, and made a lot of money. But I was invited by the then chief whip, Lord Denham, Bertie Denham, mm. And um, I was rather in awe of him. He was a great figure of the 20th century in the House of Lords. And he said, we need somebody in the Whip's office, please. Will you come and join us? And I didn't entirely jump at it. I took a a weekend to think it over. And I came to the conclusion that it would be a wonderful thing to say that you had served in Margaret Thatcher's government Um, the year before she'd won the 1987 general elections. Things were obviously quite difficult. And it was by no means certain that we would ever win another general election. So I rather imagined I'd do it for a couple of years and then find something else to do. But I, I, I've, I very much wanted to do something political, something in the House of Lords that had a bit of uh, meaning and uh, part of the life that my grandfather and father had had done—a a life of, of service, if you want. Um, and so I accepted the job and. I was a whip for 12
0: months, and then I was promoted to a junior minister. So what happens? Thatcher phones you up and says, Tom, uh, I want you to become a minister, or do you get a call from someone else? No, no, she she did. I mean, in in those days, the prime
1: minister really did choose and decide who she wanted in in her government, obviously uh, um, on advice. And um, it was... uh, an, an, an extraordinary thing. I went to, I went into number 10 Downing Street, and she invited me to become a minister, which was, which was very kind and generous of her. In fact, I subsequently worked out that I was her youngest minister, not the youngest in the House of Commons, but the youngest overall of her ministers, which is why now I'm very proud to be the chairman of the Margaret Thatcher Archive Trust, yes. which looks after all her uh, papers, apart from her you know,
0: government papers. And that's at Churchill College, isn't it? It's at Churchill College, Cambridge, and they do a magnificent job in looking after them. So in the Thatcher years, you were at uh, employment and you were Minister for Scotland. Thinking back on those, what are the things that you changed, that you achieved whilst you were doing it? Well, the employment
1: job was genuinely interesting, and, I, you know, I was completely new to it, still in my 20s. But a it, it, few years before then, David Young, who was a great Secretary of State for Employment and had come from business to try and transform various things, he had decided that uh, leisure, um, what he called pleasure leisure jobs, was going to create the employment for the next few decades. And so in employment was the tourism department and i became the minister for tourism <laughs> uh, it, it, it was hugely entertaining i i i, I traveled the, the country i mean england i mean you were like a butlin's red coat i i, I was <laughs> i went to blackpool i i went uh, to the pleasure beach i went to um uh well, um, loads of places i mean you name it i i went to it and experienced uh um, the world of, of of tourism they were all deeply skeptical of me but actually i i, I worked away at it and with them and uh, in the end we we had a great time sadly i only did it for 12 months because then I got another call from number 10 and I was sent to the Department of environment very briefly which had just put into place the legislation for the community charge otherwise known <laughs> as the poll tax. <laughs>
0: That's one thing you weren't blamed for. No, no.
1: (laughs) I was only there for a few months, and then there was an enormous political row within the Conservative and Unionist Party in Scotland. And what it meant was that uh, Michael Forsyth, who's now Lord Forsyth, very brilliant, who had been chairman of the party, he had to move rather rapidly, and uh, Lord Sanderson... What was the row about? I I think at heart it was a clash of personalities and a little bit of policy on how to do things or how
0: not to do things. And this was, of course, before Scottish independence. Uh... Yes.
1: I mean, the Scottish independence and devolution have been rattling around for a very long time um, and, um, it, and wasn't moving forward. But it was there. It was an issue. And there was certainly a movement within the Scottish Conservative Party to accept an element of devolution, which I was very much opposed to. as. To be fair, anybody else was who counted. And, uh, uh, and and so there was still a battle and an argument to be had and to convince the then Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, who was a firm unionist, that this was the, uh, the right approach. So I went up to Scotland to become the Agriculture and Fisheries Minister and Minister for the Highlands and Islands. Again, it was all a, a great revelation. And it was very, very interesting because
0: there was an aspect of policy development. What was the policy development?
1: Well, on on things like fisheries. Um, Fisheries, as you you know, was essentially run by Brussels, by the European Union. And this was before the Maastricht debate and, and, and all of that. So I spent an enormous amount of time going backwards and forwards to Brussels with the English Minister for Agriculture, who was John Gummer. And um, actually, John Gummer was amazingly good and direct about it all, but I had to you know, keep fighting the, the Scottish corner, which I was very happy to
0: do. What were the issues? What were the issues, the Scottish fishermen? The issues were
1: about how to provide for conservation of the fish while catching enough and valuable enough to be able to make a living. And there was a huge debate about something called the square mesh net and the square mesh net contrary to a more diamond shaped net meant that little fish could escape <laughs> and this debate went on and on for many many months but in the end they managed to reach some sort of a compromise uh, and and actually it was great it was very successful and 10 15 years later the fish stocks in the north sea began to uh, to recover and to climb
0: haddock and cod uh, principally but, but many others as well and then of course, the demise of Thatcher, which you must have been pretty upset about. Yes,
1: it's it's a, it's a very interesting question,
0: um, which I've thought about many, many times, including
1: when I was there. I mean, this, this thing, it just happened um, uh, because it was all in, in the House of Commons. But there was, without a doubt, a move towards getting her out. People felt she'd been there for too long. Um, she wasn't coming up with any new ideas. I didn't think that was right. I actually thought they... A prime minister who had won three general elections had the ability to win a fourth. The only blot was this thing called the the poll tax. And the poll tax really did cast a very long shadow over Thatcher's last term of office. And I think it is unlikely that she would have changed her mind on the poll tax. I think it would have been politically difficult and personally uh, difficult. And I was... Part of a conversation. We were all part of a conversation where they say, "What do you think?" You know what advice should we give the prime minister? This is the secretary of state at the Scottish office came to see me, and he was very sure that it was time for the end, and inevitably that is what happened. And um, it was a, 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 a sad moment in politics, although no doubt lots of people rejoiced for it. And then suddenly we had John Major. We had this competition. And there was John Major. And it was a very different style, a different kind of politics. John Major was, I think, a very able and capable man. But it was a totally different way of operating from uh, Margaret Thatcher. And you went back to environment? I did, very briefly again.
0: And then you became Minister of State for Trade?
1: Yes, I went to the Department of Trade and Industry as a Minister of State, where I became the Minister for Small Firms. Um, and um, there were lots of jokes about that, that they had been large firms, but now they were small firms. <laughs> but, but actually, they were small firms and often family firms that really had struggled through a period of recession. And um, we were trying very much to champion them, particularly towards the Treasury in terms of, uh, of, of, of tax inheritance tax for family firms, and also there was a vibrancy and an energy in the small firm sector that was very different from that faced by by larger firms. So I was very, very happy in that uh, department. I worked for Michael Heseltine, who was an extraordinary Secretary of State and, and actually a very substantial figure. You know, whatever else he did, he was a very substantial figure
0: as President of the Board of Trade. And of course, he was a very successful businessman himself.
1: He was. And he uh, still is, actually. He was. I mean,
0: I mean you know, if, if, if there
1: was a fault, it wasn't really a fault, but every morning he would come in fizzing with ideas. Civil servants were commissioned to do some work, uh, produce papers by the afternoon. But by the next day, most of these ideas had disappeared, <laughs> and it was another <laughs> slate of ideas. But but you were there for three years, weren't you, roughly? No, I half. was there for 12 months. 12 and months, then really? I there was another call from number 10, And I went to see the prime minister, and I walked in, and I said to him, I said, you've been very imaginative this morning, because we'd already heard what the reshuffle was like. And he said, well, not as imaginative as I'm about to be. And then he said, I'd like you to become the chief whip in the House of Lords. And of course, that was totally ridiculous. I was young enough to be the the, the grandson of most of these hugely eminent people in the House of Lords. But uh, he talked me into it. And I went out, and the new leader of the House of Lords was Lord Cranbourne, um, who I didn't really know terribly well, but I got to know him very well and became a very good friend. And the two of us had a fantastic partnership for several years thereafter.
0: And of course, he, like you, was steeped in political tradition, being from the Salisbury family. Uh, And you became, as you say, very close friends, and he was someone you could seek a lot of advice from. And of course, people suggest that the two of you hatched up this plan to get rid of a lot of the hereditaries. And it was a Strathclyde-Cranbourne plan, but there's much more to it than that. Yes, well, of course, it was Mr. Blair's plan. He wanted to get rid of all the hereditary
1: peers. For no particular reason. There was never a a great design behind what he was trying to do. It was really a piece of constitutional vandalism. But what he discovered, Tony Blair, Prime Minister, was if you did it in two stages, or said you were doing it in two stages, you'd be able to overcome the ancient block to reform of the House of Lords, which is what you replace it with. And he didn't have to say what he was going to replace it with. All he said is there will be a stage two at some point in the future uh, when we will have a more democratic reform or whatever it was. But, you know, the hereditary peers are so abhorrent, we must get rid of them. And most uh, uh, hereditary peers were conservative. So it was a, a, a political attack on a political party dressed up. As, as something deeper. It was a sort of typically Blairite manoeuvre. Uh, but what is true is that uh, Robert Cranbourne and I, we had been discussing this for months and months and months.
0: But sorry, just pause for a moment. William Hague was against this reform because naturally it was going to erode the power of the Conservative Party and the Lords.
1: No, that's not the case. Um, um, it really isn't the case. Um uh, Robert uh, Cranbourne and I while well, we we st- we started to think about how we would oppose these changes in the house of lords and um Robert said very early on we cannot defend the hereditary principle simply because it's been there for a long time and something that we all we all value and and like that isn't good enough we have to have another reason and so we said well there should be no stage 1 without stage 2 which may not be the snappiest political slogan, but uh, but but it was basically, tell us what it is that you're going to end up with before we will agree to the demise of all the hereditary peers. And gradually, out of that, a negotiation began with the Labour Party. With, and who
0: were you negotiating with?
1: With Lord Irvin of Laird, Right. who was the distinguished Lord Chancellor, more sinned against than sinning, I think. Um, who, who 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 really was in charge of this, not the leader of the House of Lords, who was uh, Lady J or Lord Richard. And um, um, But the, the, the point that you raised about William Hague is, is very important because William Hague is an honorable and decent man. Uh, so is Robert Cranbourne, or Robert Salisbury, as he now is. And uh, they worked perfectly well together, and Robert kept William well-informed about what was happening, about the discussions that were taking place. Any idea that this was somehow a deep secret hidden from the leader of the Conservative Party is simply uh, not true. However, there came a point when William Hague said, well, we need to open this up to the shadow cabinet. And a small group of the shadow cabinet, senior people, were brought in together. And they were deeply shocked and rather horrified. (laughs) <laughs> what uh, we'd all been up to. And, <laughs> and if, if you look back historically at what had happened in the run-up to the 1911 Parliament Act, which I will not bore you with now, essentially what the Tory party in the House of Commons were saying was go off, fight the battle, die in the ditch, cause whatever mayhem and havoc you possibly can, and uh, on your dead bodies we will raise the victory, the standard of victory. Well, uh, that didn't appeal to us. So we we tried to get the shadow cabinet to agree. They wouldn't. We then came back a second time and they still wouldn't agree at that point. And and William Hague, I think he would say now that he'd never really given Robert Cranbourne the positive go ahead. I think if you were to talk to Robert, he might say that he'd felt something a little bit more positive than that. But either way, he didn't agree. The shadow cabinet didn't agree, and Robert went to back to see uh, Derry Irvin uh, and and struck a deal. And that exploded in everybody's face in the most appalling uh, manner of high theatre and drama. The ways these things can happen in 1998 in the House of Commons, in the House of Lords. Everybody was was sort of rather shattered and appalled by it what had happened.
0: How many hereditaries were there at that time?
1: Well, there were about, uh, I mean, in all, about 1,200 hereditary peers. I mean, not not many of them came to the House of Lords, either because they were disinterested, uh, wanted nothing to do with politics, or were too old, or
0: you know, it, just wasn't, it wasn't convenient but, to them. So how many working, 300 right. or something? Uh, p- probably, yeah, 250, 300. So there were 300 people who, nearly 200 people, obviously because there were 92, left. Who um, were going to be very disappointed. And so not surprising, that must have been the mood music, must have been quite hostile. It, it was incredibly hostile. The Piers Bar, you were not exactly applauded into and said, well, Do you want a drink, Tom, do you? No, it wasn't <laughs> quite as bad as that because both Robert Cranbourne and I had you know,
1: assiduously worked uh, very closely with our hereditary uh, colleagues. And ultimately, what we, our aim and objective was to say to the government, by all means, get rid of the hereditary peers, but you do need to offer some guarantees of what the future will look like. The Labour government um, were adamant that they fully intended to introduce a proper reform early uh, in the next century, in the next decade, soon after the general election, but they weren't yet in a position to explain what it was. And it was a who set up a royal commission chaired by Lord Wakeham to try and answer some of these very complicated questions about what was going to happen next. So the hereditary peers, on balance, admired the work that we had done, were horrified that it had led to this terrible schism with the parliamentary party in the uh, House of Commons, and there was a good deal of uh, of harumphing
0: about that. After all this, change and negotiations, what what was the makeup of the Lords and, and, and how did it shape itself after that? Well, Tony Blair got what he, largely what he had
1: promised in 1997 at the general election the Labour Party manifesto to get rid of hereditary peers from the House of Lords, but not entirely. And we made sure that there was a rump of hereditary peers left behind, 92 uh, in all. And as the years have gone by, their quality of them have increased and uh, improved. And we've now got a House of Lords which is largely appointed, but still with this small element of heredity, which in, in part is a salute to what has been before, but is also a reminder to people that if you want to reform the House of Lords, you've really got to have an answer of what it is you want to end up with. And we never ultimately got that answer from Tony Blair's government. Um, Now, Lady Young, Janet Young, who is a very significant and serious figure and was the first lady leader of the House of Lords in the early 1980s, um, she had become the chair of the... And she was conservative. Yep, she was conservative. She'd become the chair of the Association of Conservative Peers. And so as Chief Webb, I I got to know her very, very well. And she came up to me and she said, look, um, you're going to have to take over the leadership. I said, I couldn't possibly do that. Um, not after what we've been through. And then William Hay called me and he said, I want you to be leader. I said, I don't tell He sacked you. Cran- Cranbourne. Yes, well, quite, whether he was sacked or whether he was sacked <laughs> is a moot point. But basically,
0: he went. And the Strathclyde career then became even more meteoric you became leader of the yes shadow leader of the house of lords yes yes uh then eventually leader of the house of lords talk about the uh elected
1: so the 1999 act was 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 passed the uh elections took place for the hereditary peers who were going to to play a part and uh uh, by-elections kicked off in the early part of the the decade so it was a An extraordinary period of change within the House of Lords itself. I mean, suddenly, this body that had had a large hereditary element, what felt like forever, the introduction of life peers in the late 1950s, obviously had a very good um, impact, but they were all kicked out. And it was a blatant political uh, game. Um, but we were still able to 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 uh, be politically active in the House of Lords to bring people round and make sure that there were some significant changes to legislation, most particularly on things like terrorism, a real attack on uh, civil livers, liberties, on ancient rights of the British people, particularly after 2011. But it was right that we stood up to those uh, forces, and that really took us through. Uh, that parliament and the one after 2005, right up to the 2010 general election, where where Mr. Cameron became prime minister with Nick Clegg as his deputy.
0: And there he wanted to as part of the manifesto for the Liberal Democrats. They wanted an elected chamber, and the battle started all over again for survival.
1: It, it, it did. It was an important part of the plank, the electoral plank for the Liberal Democrats. I'm, I'm not entirely sure how committed Nick Clegg was to it, but he knew his party were. And so he took it upon himself to try and get something done. And he set up a joint committee of both houses uh, right across the, the, the board, who sat in interminable meetings in his uh, office just off at Whitehall. And out of it, came the I think 2012 House of Lords uh, Act which was not bad in parts but um, my advice to him at the the end I got on very well with Nick Clegg I like him I said look if you're going to make this different you need to call it something different you can't have the House of Lords with no no peers in it you know why don't you call it a senate and uh, he thought that was quite good but his Peers in the House of Lords didn't. They thought it was a, a trap that I had carefully engineered.
0: <laughs> Almost certainly was for him,
1: him to fall into. I I said you have to describe the electoral system if you're going to elect all these people. Anyway,
0: it, it, there were
1: all sorts of of of, of details uh, on it. It went to the House of Commons. House of Commons voted at, at second reading, which is the the main vote to approve the principle of a new bill in front of Parliament. There was overwhelming support for it. And then the rats got to it, which is what had happened in the last hundred years on a reform of the House of Lords, and the Labour Party refused to negotiate on a timetable to get the the bill done. Uh, the government then lost a it vote did. in the House of Commons, and that was the end of that. <laughs> you know, it just exploded in in Nick Clegg's face. and. Uh, and that was the, the last we heard of, of, of real reform. And here we are, 10 years after that, 2023, um, still waiting for
0: a sensible reform to come about. Mm. But looking back, though, I mean, this is talking per- about you personally. Do you, do you regret that you didn't take time out to go, and as you were, on a path to earning a very significant income? Do you regret any of that, or do you, do you look forward and think you know what i've done i feel very satisfied with
1: no i i, I mean i chose to do what i what i did i was very I, and i still am very happy with the role that i played i stood down in t- 2023 when i had done 25 years 2013 even 20, sorry, <laughs> 2013 2013 i'm oh, in 2013 um which was 25 years after i had first become a minister and I, I felt really felt at that stage I had given as much as
0: I possibly could and it was up to somebody else to, to take up and you did the feel rates. frustrated a bit by the government we both did and we talked about it mm. well Tom it's been fantastic thank you so much for sparing the time well thank you very much Jonathan